You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. This week, we are looking at the blockade in the Senate that hamstrung military promotions and how that has exposed flaws in how the Senate conducts its business. Also, is Miami the next Silicon Valley? For a while, it looked like that might be the case, but was it all hype? And we'll learn how artificial intelligence might be able to help scientists track down the causes of diseases. But we begin with labor activity, and while some contracts are resolved and others are still being debated, there is more concern now that more labor strife is coming to the U.S. economy, and it's not cheap. Judy Ansel is the retired director of the Institute for Labor Studies. She predicted the impact of the UAW strike. It will cause a shortage of cars. And so if somebody wants to buy a car, it's going to be more difficult to, to do that. It's going to lower spending, uh, consumer spending, uh, as people tighten their belts. And we're pleased to welcome Betsy Stevenson to the show. She is a Bloomberg View columnist and an associate professor of public policy and economics at the University of Michigan. Now, she was on the President's Council of Economic Advisors and was chief economist at the U.S. Department of Labor. And we are very happy to welcome her to the show. Uh, Dr. Stevenson, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and as you explain in your column on the Bloomberg Terminal, labor strikes, they are not cheap. They idle equipment. You've got lost wages, lost shareholder profits, all of this impacting economic growth and inflation. But we've seen so much of this action of late. Why has this been happening if it's so expensive? It is worth uh, keeping in mind that in the United States, we actually rarely see these kind of labor actions compared to Europe. So we're thinking, wow, we're seeing a lot. Uh, but it's not a lot compared to, to other countries, but it is a lot for us. And in fact, the number of labor actions was up 50% in 2022 over 2021. And we're actually already have as many la labor actions in 2023 as we had in 2022. So clearly we're going to see it up again this year. Why are American workers who usually are able to negotiate deals striking and I think the reason is that we're just in a very uncertain labor market right now. There's been a lot of change over the last 20 years. Workers have lost bargaining power. We've seen a shift uh, in wages towards uh, 
people who what, what economists would call the owners of capital, the people who own the equipment, what normal people would call things like shareholders. So shareholders are getting these uh, and and CEOs are getting great pay, but the workers pay as a, as a share of the earnings has gotten smaller and smaller. That actually turned around a little bit during COVID and it, it led to a lot of people saying that this was a new period where workers had a lot of bargaining power. And I think that in this uncertain environment, everybody wants to test, well, how, how much can we possibly get as a union unionized workforce? And employers are a little reluctant to give because they're not sure how much they do need to give because they're looking at 20 years of workers not having a lot of bargaining power and wondering, do they really have a lot of bargaining power right now? I know unemployment's really low, but you know it, it seems like the labor market's slowing. So I think it's that uncertainty, no one really knowing how much uh, they should give up that is leading to all these labor actions. Isn't it funny that some people think, oh, I know, I don't know how much I should give up, so I should push harder in this uncertainty, whereas there are others who would think, I can't push harder because of the uncertainty. It seems like that would have been a flip side of that coin. Not necessarily. If, if you think that this is your one chance to actually claw back, let's take the UAW, they made huge concessions in 2008 when it looked like the American uh, auto industry was on the verge of collapse. This might be their only opportunity this opportunity to get some of those concessions back. Um, it's not clear whether they'll be able to and how much they'll be able to. That's what I mean by uncertainty. Um, but if now's your best shot, you ought to make a run at it because otherwise you may never get those those concessions back. So with that overlay, you do anticipate more labor action coming into this year and maybe next year as well? You know, the, the analogy here is to think about, you know, when somebody is is uh, been accused of a crime, when is their lawyer going to suggest that they take a plea deal? Well, when it's pretty obvious that they're going to be convicted and, um, you know, you might as well reduce the risk by and and the cost and the expense of a long trial by just coming to an agreement and negotiating a plea deal. Similarly, when we see you know, unions have to negotiate their contract with their employers. If everybody sort of understands what the outcome is going to be, why have all the cost of a, a strike or a labor action just negotiate the, the deal? What the problem is right now, I think it's that environment where it's just not clear that I think helps fuel, uh, it makes it harder to come to agreement. And then what we're doing with unions is we're layering on a really pivotal time for unions. We're hearing that Americans are supporting unions more than they have, you know, in 50 years. Um, and so that public approval of labor unions remains near highs last seen in the mid 1960s. But at the same time, the unionization rate, the, the share of, labor, of workers in the US economy that are members of unions hit an all time low last year. So if unions are going to play an important role in the American labor market, they need some big wins this year. They need to show that they're there playing an important role, preserving wages, setting a reasonable standard of living, helping to set hours. They wanna prove themselves uh, in this moment so that they can continue with that public approval 
and then hopefully actually bring more union members uh, on board because only 6% of private sector workers belong to a union. Uh, that's why strikes are not part of the everyday economy in the United States is we just don't have that many workers who are in unions who are, could potentially strike. Um, what we're seeing is the small share of American workers who belong to unions trying to flex as much power as they can to prove their, their, their role in the economy, as well as to try to halt some of the slide in wages for middle-class workers that's been going on for decades. And we are talking with Professor Betsy Stevenson, former member of the President's Council of Economic Advisors and chief economist at the Department of Labor. I, I want to boil this all down to a cause, if that's possible. You were talking about bargaining power and what workers feel like they may be able to do and how they can push back. Is part of this because of the pandemic and the shutdown? What we saw coming out of the pandemic was just enormous change in the labor market. Uh, the way people do their work changed. So lots of people were all of a sudden able to work from home. Of course, people who work on the factory floor are not able to work from home. So now there's a, a greater schism between people who do office jobs where they can now do them at least partially from home and people who need to do in-person jobs. Uh, there was also just a change in how American consumers buy things with a shift towards goods and away from services that also really changed the demand for workers and people's preferences for the type of work they wanted to do were shaped by the pandemic. So coming out of the pandemic, we had a lot of change underway in the labor market. And one of the other things we saw coming out of the pandemic was demand came back faster than supply. That's the best way to explain why we had inflation. People wanted to buy things before uh, really sellers were able to fully meet the, the supply of the things people wanted to buy. That ended up pushing up prices. Um, and the result of inflation is that some people made more money and some people didn't. And that's one of the problems with inflation you know, inflation is a generalized rise in prices. So it means that wages are going up too, but not everybody's wages are going up equally. And one of the things we saw with unionized workers was that their wages did not rise as rapidly as non-unionized workers. And as a result, there are a lot of unionized workers for whom, you know, in terms of the stuff they can buy, what, what economists call real wages, they're earning less today than they were in 2019. And so obviously that's a fight worth having. You know, a lot of unionized workers, they've been, you know, particularly if you're talking about a big union like the auto industry, you know, they're often multi-generational auto workers. So they don't really want to change jobs, but they, they do want to make sure that they're not getting left behind because the people who have been changing jobs in this economy, their real wages have been growing. They can buy more stuff today with their earnings than they could buy in 2019. That's not true for workers who haven't changed jobs. And that's why if you're in a job that you've been in for a long time are probably going to push really hard for a wage increase so that you're not falling behind. Betsy Stevenson, a Bloomberg View columnist and associate professor of public policy and economics at the University of Michigan. It has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time with us. It's great talking with you.
Now, coming up, we're going to look at how a blockade by a Republican senator exposed some flaws in how lawmakers negotiate. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. After weeks of a blockade by Senator Tommy Turbeville of Alabama, the Senate finally was able to approve some military promotions, three very important ones, including the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Now, that's a victory for the Pentagon, but the way it happened is really a defeat for the Senate. Even after those promotions were approved, Senator Tommy Turbeville, who was behind those blocks, doubled down on the blocks and the filibusters. The hold will remain in place as long as the Pentagon's illegal abortion policy remains in place. If the Pentagon lifts the policy, then I will lift my hold. It's easy as that. So the senator, they're saying that those holds will continue, and you can bet that's going to have larger implications. Let's talk about it with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Jonathan Bernstein. He covers politics and policy and joins us now. Uh, Jonathan, what does this tell us about how the Senate operates? Well, the nominations process really has has sort of broken down. Um, you know, putting a hold on something, that is a senator essentially threatening to filibuster, or filibustering by threatening to filibuster uh, is a is a time honored Senate tradition goes back fifty years or so, and then another other ways goes back longer than that, and it allows individual senators to really have a say, um, which which is potentially a very good thing. But what's happening now is that there's a basically a hold on everything mm. that's been true of executive branch and, and judicial nominations for some time now, but. At least there's only there's enough time to get to process all of those one by one. There are you know hundreds of these military promotions that have to get done. Um, they're normally all done in one batch. Um, you know the, the chairman of the committee comes and says, you know I want unanimous consent to consider on block uh, the following nominations, and they list the numbers. They 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 get numbered by. Uh, and they'll say, you know, 1135 through 1274. Sure. And everybody will give their consent, and that's it. It's, it's done. Um, instead, Tuberville is making them go one by one, and that's what they did um, on these three exceptions. Um, they It took them two days of Senate time to consider uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and two others. Uh, it, you can't do hundreds of military promotions t- taking, you know, taking up Senate time like that. So they're stuck. There, there's no real means for the Senate to do it unless they change procedures. 
Now, you had mentioned that this is a tried and true sort of technique that the Senate has used before, a procedural move. And, and, and usually a member uses it to influence policy or make a point or what have you. But this feels different. How is it different? Well, it's different because there's, there's a few things. One is um, that it's that he's using military promotions. That's been done before, but very rarely and, and usually temporarily. Typically, you put a hold on a nominee to, you know, in this case, you could do a, a civilian Department of Defense position and say, I'm going to put a hold on you know, the assistant secretary of whatever um, until you consider my my point. The second thing is that usually it's bargaining for some sort of deal that can be made. Right. Um, so, you know, often it's something for your home state. And, you know, this national policy treats my state really unfairly. Let's make a deal to do something about it. Uh, that's a that's a positive thing for U.S. democracy, in my view. Um, it sometimes means that your senator, you know, if you get their attention, you get special treatment for the state. But but that's not unreasonable. And then they get a deal and they take off the hold. Um, you know, also, it's usually something which, because it's something small and that most people don't care about typically, um, you can make a deal. This is something which is a policy that. Tuberville's in the minority on. You know, we have a Democratic majority in the Senate. Um, there's probably um, 53 or more senators who approve of the the DOD policy um, on abortion and or on, on military travel for for uh, to, to be able to get an abortion. And so he's saying, well, I don't care that um, I'm in the minority on this. And that people on the other side feel as strongly as I do, I'm going to just shut down this whole process because I want because I can. And the problem with that is that the other side can do the same thing, and then you just nothing happens, and that's not a healthy process. And and as you alluded to just now, Republicans oppose the way he is doing this and with whom he is doing this. And what I mean is Republicans aren't usually the ones who are going to go head to head with the Pentagon, right? They're not usually the ones who don't sign on to any kind of military um, spending, support, promotions, that sort of thing. They're usually in lockstep. So a lot of them don't like a strategy. But why are they going along with it? Generally, the problem is that to do anything about this, there's two ways you can do it. They could pressure him within the party and perhaps make him back down. But, you know, it's not the same Republican Party that we had 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. A lot of Republicans now are perfectly happy with bashing the Pentagon. The other piece of it is that to change, you could just change Senate procedures. You could say, well, we're going to make it a, a rule or a procedure that Without asking for consent, you can consider all of these all these promotions together. But the problem with that is that it means that individual senators would be take would be voting to take away their future rights, and senators don't like taking away right. their individual rights. They're very proud of um, their and 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 jealous of their status as U.S. senators. It's possible that we're going to move to a place where the Senate just can't work that way anymore. That seems to be what's happening with nominations. And, you know, there's, they're losing something if they do that. I know people think, well, no individual senator should be able to block things like this. But there really is a good reason for it if, if it works. But the Senate, individual senators have to show some restraint. And that's just not happening. 
And we're talking with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Jonathan Bernstein about how the Pentagon and this blocking process has exposed some flaws in how the Senate conducts its business. Uh, shifting gears just a little bit from one side to the other, you make the point in your column that the whole point of the confirmation process, not the ability to filibuster or put a hold on something, but the confirmation process itself is to restrict the authority of the president and empower the Senate and this tactic when not used the way it was intended, may undermine that. How so? Yeah, you know, one of the things, well, okay, so you have these hundreds of promotions. You can't do them individually on the Senate floor. You have to do them in bulk. If that can't work because individual senators won't do it, um, then what's going to happen is eventually that's going to go away. And, and, and you know, you'll, there'll be a rule that you don't have to have the promotions done. It's it's happens all the time, or it suggests all the time for executive branch nominations, especially. Um, you know, we have way more political people in the in our executive branch agencies and departments than comparable democracies do, and it's a real democratic strength in my view, because it it means that the executive branch isn't just the tool of the presidency, and it's also not just permanent bureaucracy. Congress has a role in it too. But if Congress can't do the can't do the job, then what you're going to get is calls for fewer and fewer uh, Senate-confirmed people, which is either going to mean the president appoints them or that they'll be part of the permanent bureaucracy themselves. And neither of those is really a, good for U.S. democracy because con instead of Congress and the president and the bureaucracy all constraining each other, this Congress will be cut out of it uh, to a larger extent than it already is. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Jonathan Bernstein. And coming up, we'll learn how Miami could have been the next Silicon Valley. In fact, it may still hold some promise for becoming the next big tech sector. Don't forget, we are available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. This is Bloomberg Opinion. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. The Miami area has always been prone to hype cycles, and the great tech boom of recent years is the latest example. Now, for months, you may recall there was this popular narrative that the region could become a viable alternative to, say, Silicon Valley. That's mostly fizzled, but there appears to be some lingering promise. Let's talk about it now. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Jonathan Levin has served as the Miami bureau chief for Bloomberg in the past, and he joins us now. He knows the area quite well. Jonathan, was all of that talk about replacing or at least supplementing Silicon Valley puffery, or was there something there? 
Yeah, kind of, sort of. So all of this has started during the COVID-19 pandemic when uh, City of Miami Mayor Francis Suarez got on social media and started talking about how uh, you know, venture capitalists, uh, tech entrepreneurs should move uh, from San Francisco to to Miami. Uh, you know, and I, I think part of it was always a little bit political, quite quite frankly. Uh, you know, Francis is a Republican. Of course, he uh, ran for the, the Republican uh, nom- nomination for president very sure. briefly, and there was this, uh, you know pervasive narrative that they they were all trying to push, like kind of uh, come to the free state of Florida, you know, San Francisco is such a, a, a disaster. So there was a lot of politics uh, and they tried to convince us that it was also an economic narrative, but all, all of that was happening. And then suddenly, the number, the VC investment numbers in South Florida actually start to go up a lot, and so you say, "Wait a minute, maybe is there actually something to this?" Right. So uh, the magnitude I'm I'm talking about is like uh, it, South Florida has always been like a third tier VC market. So on a trailing 12 month basis, uh, before the pandemic, they were doing something on the order of like two billion dollars for 12 month period in terms of, of uh, VC capital injected. Uh, it jumped all the way up at the peak. Uh, this is uh, sort of early to mid 2022 to $8 billion, so a quadrupling. So you say maybe there was actually uh, something going on there, uh, but you take a step back and you realize that some of the development of officials and, and politicians were maybe uh, playing with the numbers a little bit to their their advantage. So part of the story is BC boomed everywhere, right? Sure. Uh, and uh, tons of cities were were beneficiaries of, of this. At the same time that BC was booming everywhere, uh, you also had the COVID work from anywhere phenomenon which made beneficiaries of a lot of cities, not just uh, Miami, but also some uh, some cities that I think you, you would say are quite counter narrative to this, uh, you know, liberal cities are, are, are a mess come to the free state of Florida narrative. Chicago, for instance, uh, big boom uh, during that period. You can also look at like uh, Boulder, Colorado, uh, Philly, uh, Seattle, you know, so, uh, this was happening in a lot of places, and part of it—I don't want to totally dismiss it—but sure. part of it was Miami was the best at just seizing the narrative. We are a place that is great at hype cycles. <laughs> if there is something behind the hype cycle, often you find a hype cycle that has a kernel of reality, a, uh, some sort of um, solid molten core of truth. Uh, surrounded by uh, the dance, right? Surrounded by the hype. And I'm just wondering if the VCs bought into that or if they found that kernel of truth that made it viable and made it worth their while in investing. Yeah. So uh, as I look into the data, I think what is what is encouraging is, again, th- there are Oh, there, there are big macro trends that that sort of uh, you know rising tides lift all all boats. So you want to uh, step back and really focus on something like market share, right? So when I look at market share uh, for Miami on a dollars basis, market share sort sort of shot up during that pandemic period, and it's basically uh, it's come back down a lot. Uh, a more encouraging way to look at it is number of deals, which uh, 
takes uh, sort of uh, ticket size out of the equation, right? And by number of deals, Miami's market share in the VC space shot up during this pandemic era, and it's come back down a little bit, but it's holding on to a lot of those gains. And so I find I actually find that pretty encouraging, and I think that that might uh, sort of spell out a path forward for this market. I think it's uh, it was always a little bit hyperbolic. I mean a lot bit hyperbolic to say that Miami was going to replace San Francisco and Silicon Valley. I mean, come on. But uh, it is objectively still uh, a, a less expensive place to live than a lot of those West Coast cities and New York City. So maybe there's a space for us in early stage startup. Maybe this is a place, and we've seen some examples of this, maybe this is a place you know, where uh, young, sm smart, entrepreneurial people come and they get their idea started, they get their idea funded, because there is a lot of capital here. There are a lot of rich people in South Florida. They get they get the ball rolling and maybe they, they, they move on uh, and they do those late stage rounds out in the West Coast. They take their company public. But uh, but maybe we really carve out a, a niche for ourselves in that early stage space. Uh Okay, well, let me get into that a little bit. What does Miami offer? You mentioned uh, less expensive. You mentioned lots of capital. The first thing I think is, you know, it, you're never going to shovel snow in Miami. You never have to worry about that. Uh, but that's probably less important to the tech industry. What is else do they have to offer? Yeah, I, I, so I, I basically uh, think of several several pillars. So uh, so we talked about uh, deep pockets. You can you you can find and meet with a lot of a lot of investors here. Uh, favorable quality of life, uh, uh, less expensive than than maybe of the many of the dominant uh, tech and finance uh, centers. Although I, I I should know that if you're talking like the urban core in Miami, mm -hmm. that spread has been closing a little bit. So we'll have to watch that. But the, uh, the, the sort of fourth pillar is our connection to Latin America, which is really something totally unique huh. and kind of extraordinary about uh, about South Florida, right? Uh, you have this huge cultural uh, connection, something like uh, you know, two thirds of households uh, speak uh, a language other than than English at home to to some extent. Oftentimes, we're talking about Spanish, but Portuguese is widely spoken here, Haitian Creole. So there's a cultural connection uh, to to Latin America. Um, there's a deep pool of uh, Latin America wealth. Uh, you can get direct flights to anywhere in uh, in Latin America, and it's kind of just the perfect place if you wanted to create a capital of Latin America VC. I think this is where you would put it. These are cultures and economies that are kind of siloed in their own way, especially like Brazil and the rest of LATAM. So if you wanted to create this pan-Latin American VC hub, I, I think, and there's some evidence to, to this, there really is no better place than Miami. Climate change. Does that factor in at all? You know, Miami, low-lying area, South Florida, lots of beaches, lots of potential for issues with hurricanes, severe weather, flooding in the future. How does that or does it factor into this? No, I think it absolutely factors into it. You, you know, you have Miami-Dade County uh, 
uh, already uh, negotiating with the Army Corps of Engineers in terms of are they going to do a seawall? Are they going to use natural barriers to protect this area uh, for the for the long haul? I think it's absolutely going to be a challenge. You already see uh, rising property insurance rates cutting into uh, some of the affordability uh, that we talked about earlier, and so it's it's something uh, it's something to look at. I think. Uh, in a weird way, South Florida is going to continue to lure uh, wealth uh, for for a long time, uh, and wealthy people are going to continue to to put thirty million dollar mansions right in some of the most vulnerable real estate and barrier island, barrier island communities on the beach. But what we often forget is those transactions go through because those people can afford to lose that. Uh, and I think that that's, that that's really the core of it. And you're absolutely right. Uh, as we look 10, 20, 30 years into the future, um, there's no talking about economic development uh, without first talking about sustainable solutions to the climate issue. Jonathan Levin is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering markets, finance, and M&A. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. Scientists are only just scratching the surface of what artificial intelligence can teach us about human biology and disease. Let's dig into this now. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Lisa Jarvis covers biotech, healthcare, and the pharmaceutical industry and joins us now. Lisa, when I first read your column on the Bloomberg Terminal, my first thought was, oh no, my doctor's going to be a robot. That is not what this is about. <laughs> no, no robot doctors yet. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is basically about the idea that scientists are learning how to take our genetic code, you know, this very long string of letters and turn it into information that's useful in a way that they haven't been able to do before. You've been following this. What are you seeing? Any examples or for instance? Last year, basically, there was a, to me, kind of mind-blowing breakthrough where they could take the string of um, uh, letters that apply to a particular protein and a computer could turn that into an image. This is something scientists have been trying to do for years, figure out how to go from, you know, that sort of two-dimensional code into a three-dimensional picture that is close to what we know is the reality. Um, it's super useful because they use that to um, help develop drugs, to understand disease better. Um, and, you know, they did this Google DeepMind, um, the artificial intelligence um, unit of Alphabet, was able to do that for every protein in existence, 214 million of them. So it's that it sounds so wonky, but it's actually a really big deal to be able to do that. They're not perfect, it's a prediction, but a lot of them are close enough that it's really helpful. And now there's this kind of next phase, which I'm happy to talk about too. Yes, please do. What's the next phase? So we're learning um, about all the different things that one could use that information for. But what DeepMind did was shift to a different project where they used kind of the foundation of this program called AlphaFold um, that predicts the stru structures of proteins. And they gave it a different problem to solve. They taught it how to solve a different problem, which is how do we know which of the thousands of tiny mutations each of us carry are actually harmful? Um, and so which one, and which ones are benign? Because there's a lot of, all of us have all these mutations in our body, but they don't kill us, right? <laughs> they don't even all cause disease. And we don't necessarily have a good way to distinguish between those two. Um, experiment has taught us that. Um, and so they've created this long list, exhaustive list 
basically predicting which things might be a problem and which not, which is, it, again, it sounds so wonky, but it could be very helpful filter for doctors who are trying to understand why someone is sick, like it has a very rare genetic disease, they get back their gene sequencing results, and they look through all of them, and they don't necessarily know what the problem is, which one is the cause. DeepMind was really um, careful in stressing that this isn't a diagnostic tool. You know, you want to layer that on to other information that we've spent years accumulated, decades <laughs> accumulating. Um, I think there obviously are going to be other areas of healthcare where i think there could be some problems with AI or just tendency. Some of that is around patient privacy. You know, some of it, again, is around thinking that the computer might know better than a doctor's in, you know, intuition and years of seeing patients. And instead of um, integrating those two things together for something better, relying on one or the other. So um, those are the things that I would be worried about when it comes. But on balance, I am, have been a little skeptical of AI when it comes to drug discovery and um, diagnosis. Uh, I, I'm pretty excited about um, the things that DeepMind is doing. Um, I think none of our proteins live in isolation. They have partners. They, you know, interact with each other inside our body and trying to get to a point where we understand what those interactions and predict what those interactions look like would be so important when it comes to trying to stop disease. So that to me is like a much tougher problem. Um, that could be the next frontier. I would hope that someone someday can solve that. All right. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Lisa Jarvis. And that does it for this week's Bloomberg Opinion. We are produced by Eric Molo, and you can find all of these columns on the Bloomberg Terminal. We're also available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines are just ahead. I'm Amy Morris, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.